This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. Get involved with the debate by tweeting at Blue Moon Podcast and check out exclusive interviews on bluemoonpodcast.com. It's your club and this is your show. Tis the season to be jolly. After all, City are back to winning ways. They're through to the semi-finals of the League Cup and there's more football that you can shake a stick at over the coming weeks. What's not to enjoy? Perhaps the prospect of that showdown with Liverpool to come in early January. But that's for future Blue Moon podcasts to worry about because right here, right now, we've got wins over Everton and Leicester to deal with. Also on today's show, we'll be casting an eye back to the festive season 20 years ago as we remember how it all picked up after that infamous York away match in 1998. We'll hear from a lot of the players from that era to really see what it was like as City struggled in the third tier of English football. We'll be looking ahead to the weekend's clash with Crystal Palace and City's return to the King Power Stadium on Boxing Day and Howard Hocking is casting his eye over the news this week. Can't possibly think what he might have to talk about in the football world. I'm your host, Sam Roscoe, and joining me in the studio, I've got two City fans in the form of Paul Atherton. Good evening, Sam. You OK? I'm very good, thank you. And David Mooney. Hello, hello, hello. Fellas, it is an absolute delight. The mince pies are flowing uh, and we're all feeling very festive. Of course, we're all feeling great as well after a couple of, uh, of good wins. Um, looking at it, two games, two wins, just about in that sense, if you like. Is it looking good again now after that, that upset at Chelsea? I think it was, even losing to Chelsea, I think it was always looking good still. Because, I mean, already, even if even as the Liverpool ahead of them in the table, they're still comfortably better than anything else that's behind them. And I still think comfortably better than Liverpool as well. So... They, yeah, they're back to winning ways. That's good, but I mean, one defeat—you're not really getting too worried, are you? We had the dilemma of um, hoping United get a result at Anfield uh, the other day, and um, never going to happen, though, was it? <laughs> you know what? I must admit, I was watching it. I was thinking when they got that that goal, I thought oh, they're going to do it here, United, because it was so fluky, wasn't it? The way it, you know, just seemed to happen out of nothing, and I, you know, it really silenced Anfield going in at half time. I thought, right, they're going to come out here and they're going to do it. Uh, sadly, not to be. And uh, Liverpool got even more luck, which uh, they seem to be riding quite a lot this season. But how do you think, Paul, the, the title race is sort of shaping up between City and Liverpool? Because it is very, very fine margins, isn't it? I think I think it's good. Um, I agree with Moons. I think we're by far the better team. However, the thing for Liverpool is to have that lead, not playing that well, but they've got the squad capable of improving, could make it actually pretty tough for the second half of the season I still think we'll do it but it's made it more interesting as good as City have been you know broadly on course for the, for the same records as we had last season um, I think it's made it interesting I think we did need another like competitor really especially with United's demise and Chelsea and Arsenal having new managers and you know whatever might happen to the Spurs manager we don't know so I think it's interesting that we've actually got that bit of rivalry at the moment Do you think after how um, you know how competent City were um, last season in the way they won how how much they ran away with it do you think that it's good that it's a lot tighter this year that you know you can you can argue that it's given them more focus more motivation if you like to, to not sort of rest on the laurels I think Guardiola would say yes but I I mean I, I, even if Liverpool weren't there I don't think City would have you'd seen the previous title defences under Mancini and Pellegrini they, they, they weren't at it the following season 
I've not seen any of that from City this season. They're, they're, whether, I don't think that's because Liverpool are on the tail. I think it's because Guardiola is a control freak that is just you know it can micromanage absolutely everything. Yep. Yeah, well, fingers crossed that. Um, I don't. You know, I I feel like I kind of want this to continue to the towards the end of the season, and it, it really be sort of tense and. And pressure because I think City I tell you, can handle I tell it, you something it? that goes in City's favour is that Liverpool <clears throat> haven't really had any injuries so far, mm. and City have been, I think, performing better than Liverpool have. Okay, they've not had the same results, and Liverpool are rightly on top of the table, um, but they've not had to deal with any injuries. City have done all this so far without De Bruyne. The last few weeks they've had, um, you know, they've Aguero. had Silver out. Aguero's been injured, so there's there's been injury problems in City's camp that that Liverpool just haven't dealt with yet. So maybe when that happens to them be a different story the other thing as well we've played Arsenal away Liverpool away Chelsea away Spurs away we've only got United away have we of the you know the so-called top six left <clears throat> so I think our runnings actually must be yeah. second half of the season must be easier I think it's good to have this competition but it would be gutting if it's actually close and say Liverpool, Liverpool nicked it when they've clearly not as good team as we are and we're playing well you know we can't do much more it's just annoying. It's kind of like the United of old, you know, when they don't play well and somehow they just like walk the league and they're kind of a bit unimpressive. Well, that was, that was the 2012 thing, wasn't it? Back in 2012, everyone would say, well, City should have won the league a lot earlier. It's like, we can't stop United winning every week, you know? No, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, looking at some of City's players, Gabriel Jesus has been under some pressure recently, but two great goals was, you know, put that smile all, all back on his face. He was a happy, needed, chap, happy chappy, wasn't he? They needed finishing as well. They weren't like... They weren't simple finishes. The first one, you know, he's through one on one, and you expect him to score. But he's on his weaker side, and he's, you know, he's drawn the goalkeeper out and rolled it past him. So that's good finish. Um, and you know, it's yeah, it's the second one. The header's it's been planted right in his head, but he's it's a bullet header past the keeper. It's not he's not just cushioned it into the net. He's he's you know, he's met it and put it in. Um, right between the, the defenders as well, and he's yeah. obviously positioned himself there to make it difficult. If there are any questions about his confidence, surely they will have been silenced, Paul. I think so. I mean, he had, he had the hat trick, didn't he, uh, early in the season? Um, it's not just that, though. I mean, it, definitely not just the finishing. It is his overall overall play is a lot better. Like he's coming, he's holding the ball up really well. He's coming, he's kind of coming deep and like knocking it off, and he's you know producing some great touches. Um, you know, he's only quite small, but he does hold it up quite well. I think so. Yeah. It's good to see that, and I think we definitely need that with Aguero picking up some knocks. Um, he says that his family being here is is pretty key. Do you think we under sort of play that player happiness aspect of it all? You can do. Um, I think if you're not happy at work, your work suffers, doesn't it? And it's <clears throat> it's ultimately these are people who are doing a job. Yeah, it's a great job, and you know they they they, they get to pay to play football every week. But if they're not happy in their life, then it's going to be a slog, isn't it? I mean, you can't, you can't just. You, it's not just a case of oh, you go out. Some players go out on the pitch and and can forget all the all the troubles. I mean, you look at David Silva last season when he with uh, with Matteo Silva and he was able to kind of carry on playing. And he said afterwards that it was it was the only time he could forget the pressure he was, he was under there. Um, but other players need to just have that arm around them and just be just be comfortable in what they're doing. So yeah, it's. I think you can. I think every, it's it's the psychology of sport, isn't it? That you've, you've you know, if you're happy, you play well. What does it say about Pep Guardiola though and his management style? If it's Gabriel Jesus's family that's come over to, you know, to see him and that's made him all of a sudden perform a lot better. You can't help it though, can you? You can, a, a, a Guardiola could do absolutely everything for him, but if he's if if he's missing his family, he's missing his family. That's it. Fair enough. Um, 
Leroy Sane, Paul, played with a B in his bonnet against Everton. Two assists. Looks like he's he's still improving, doesn't it? Yeah, and I mean, um, it's good because he, he wasn't producing sort of the mazy runs that he did last season where, in this game um, in particular, sorry, where he was kind of like going through and going and creating a lot. It was kind of a bit more of a reserve because Coleman actually marked him really well, I felt. So he, with the space he had, he did the best he could do. Obviously produced two great passes, in, in particular the uh, the cross was brilliant and the timing of the pass for Jesus as well for the for the first goal was uh, really good. So his, his overall football intelligence is improving and I think usually within the fa- first five, ten minutes you can see the way Sané is going. If he doesn't get the beating of the man, you think you know he's going to struggle here. And I think... He can't. He couldn't really get past Coleman, but he kind of adapted his game and made it. Did a bit more of a Sterling role of you know knocking well, off. He, he drifted a lot. He kind of changed his role mm. up a bit. Because I mean, Coleman's one of the best right backs in the league. Very fast, good man marker. So it's good that he adapted to that a little bit. He was disappointed to go off, but Sterling, who came on to replace him, won it with his first touch. He did. Yeah, it was a, again great header. And if you if the week that Sterling's had. It was really nice for him to mm. to just kind of forget everything, go on the pitch, and and again score with his first touch um, because he'll have been, even though it would have been wrong for him to be feeling the pressure, he did still been feeling the pressure. So it was nice to see that. And uh, yeah, I mean, Sane obviously was playing well, so would have been disappointed to go off. And you can't, I mean, he didn't he didn't have a strop or anything like that. He took the decision well, so you can't really ask for more, can you? It was a, a typical performance from Manchester City. They were always on the front foot against Everton. They they punished the mistakes as well, didn't they? Quite well. Yeah, I mean, um, the first goal in particular. I don't, the, the kind of defensive line just seemed all out of out of place. But you could see the way the the drill by Guardiola just all the players spread out wide and make sure that they got a chance. I mean, Sani had multiple options there. There's a few times when um, I think uh, Jesus was in, and you know, Mares switching over. I just think like the um, the kind of well drilled to kind of take advantage of that and uh, punish any mistakes by Everton. Um, Everton changed it up, David, with the the shape. They they pulled one back. How do you think City responded to that? Badly at first, and then well afterwards. Um, the, the the kind of ten minutes or so after, I mean, it might have just been my experience of the game and the fact that that Everton scored pretty quickly after um, after changing shape. And I think actually City went on to score again about four or five minutes later. So the, so they actually cope with that quite well. But the actual initial change of shape really put City under pressure to start with. I'll be honest with you, I wouldn't have taken Sane off when he did. And I thought that was I thought that was um, a bold choice to do, it and it worked out perfectly for him. So, it, it kind of City shuffling around a little bit, it really, uh, it, they were able to cope with Everton. So I think Everton switched from a, a back three to a back four. Um, well, it was a five because the wing backs had dropped in, but you know what I mean. Um, and that's where their goal came from. It came from putting City under pressure. But then again, City switched again pretty quickly after that, and it, it just worked. Um, a good win in the end for, for Manchester City against Everton, but then albeit against a weaker side, against Leicester City, they didn't press home that, that advantage that they got. That's that's disappointing because they were they were cruising against Leicester, absolutely cruising, and just didn't finish them off. Why do you think that was, Paul? It might be slightly different lineup, maybe a bit cutthroat. I don't think Aguero was quite up to it that game either. Didn't really. Didn't Rec- really recently up. back, isn't he? Recently so. back, so I think that's part of the problem. You know, if you've got an unfit striker who's recently back, that's part of it. De Bruyne coming back, you know, albeit they scored the goal, but he's not at full fitness yet. Diaz kind of gave the ball away a lot. I think it's just a very young team mixed with some injured players coming back to fitness, and then. They never really played together in eleven before, so I think that I think it's a multi, you know, obviously as well. It's kind of a bit of a, a lesser game as such, and it is away from home. Um, you know, 
I didn't for life me see Leicester scoring, but they managed. They managed to. So I think that could be part of it as well. But disappointing. I, I agree with Moons. Any team we should pat out should create enough chances to to go and win the game and finish it off early. Well, this is what Pep Guardiola had to say after the win on Tuesday, starting with Kevin De Bruyne's return. It's a great news. He played 60 minutes and played in a, in a high level. And uh, Sergio as well, so in the minutes, they were not able to play 90 minutes. But, uh, of course, it's one more man. You know, with this amount of games, every three days, three days, so we need everybody. Hopefully the guys who are injured, like Danilo, like David Silva, and, and the other guys can, can come back as soon as possible. How big a night is that for Arrow, though? Kind of walks the pitch with everyone congratulating him. Yeah, he's a young guy, he's training really good, uh, he's so shy. <laughs> and, uh, of course, it's nice, a nice moment. So for our fans, thank you so much for coming, our fans. And uh, he deserved, he deserved the big applause because in the during the game was was brilliant in the decisions with, uh, with saving the actions with uh, with his foot and and of course in the penalties the the, the keeper as are decisive is so important and he saved I think two penalties uh, Fuchs uh, shot out but uh, he he made a good good performance. What did you think? We mentioned Eric Garcia's performance. He looked like he was, he was a mature performance. Yeah, it's incredible. He has a lot, a lot of personality. Yeah, in the preseason, in states, was incredible. He commanded all the line. He played against Bayern Munich, against uh, I don't remember Liverpool, and was incredible. Unfortunately, was a he had a tough injury in the terms of uh, was more than two months stopping, and he could not train with us because before of that, always we train with us. And he's a guy who has a lot of sense of the position. He's so smart. He's not the strongest one uh, in the he- in the he- in the header. He's not the fastest one or the quicker one. But he's few times the the opponent win one position in, when he's and he's able to guide the line and uh, and a, a lot of personality to play. Has a good vision, good pass, and uh, it's incredible. I'm so satisfied. I'm very pleased. Very pleased for him, because he didn't make one mistake. And with the ball, he played with a huge personality. It's not easy to play with a, with Gray close there, with Kelly, with a, with Madison in the last minutes. It's not easy, you know. It's a big important event. One thing is a friendly game in the preseason. Another play, when you are in a knockout game, you can be in and out. So so delight, so delight for uh, his performance. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Pep Guardiola speaking after that win over Leicester in the League Cup on Tuesday. Guardiola there spoke well of Aaron Murich's performance. What did you make of him? He's a big lad. He's, he's, <laughs> he, 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 he fills the goal, um, and that's the first kind of uh, thing. The, the other Not thing, quite Costel Pantilimon, though, well, is no, it? Nobody is. Nobody's nine foot four, are they? So it's <laughs> like, I don't know. Um, no, he, he plays well, and what I mean by that is... Um, you watch Edison when he's got the ball and he's and he's passing out. He's he's clearly not Edison, but given the ball at his feet, he'll take the pressure of a striker closing him down and still go for a short pass. He's not he's not the sort to to, to lump it long. And to be honest with you, um, I, I mean I know he's injured at the minute and he's injured for quite some time. But Bravo's not the number two anymore. Mm. It's as simple as that. Um, Eric Garcia was someone that he was so delighted for, he said. Um, how do you think he did on his competitive debut? Probably the best compliment I can give is that he didn't really notice him, seemed to be in position. I think there's one time in the channel I saw like, somebody played a lot of space, but other than that, 
I think he didn't really give much away. Seemed pretty cool on the ball. You know, mixed well with uh, was it Otamendi alongside him, yeah. and then I think Stones ahead of him. <laughs> so yeah, really good. He's only five ten, I think, which for centre halves, you know, not that, not that tall really, but he seemed pretty pretty cool on the ball. Another couple of youngsters, Phil Foden and Brahim Diaz, were in there again. Obviously, a lot has been mentioned recently about the situation with uh, Brahim. How do you think that affected? things well he's not staying is he so um i i was a little bit surprised that he that he that he started on that basis um i thought foden was a little bit quieter but he was you know he had a good game um drifted well between the lines and whatnot so i i I think he it's only a matter of time for him it really is only a matter of time well we saw in the the, you know i know we mentioned it on a, a previous podcast but the performance he put in in that, that Champions League match against Hoffenheim showed that, for me, he's not far away. He's there. You know, it, I'd be comfortable with him being in place of David Silva, Kevin De Bruyne, Sane, Sterling. He, for me, he fits that, that role now, I think. There was that, um, you know, I'm not sure how he, he plays for England under-21s or what role, but it was obvious he was playing in that kind of silver pocket in that game, where, he, where but he didn't... In, in my view, he didn't get involved in the game as much as he should have done in the way that Silva kind of does it in that role. So, obviously, he's learning from Silva in training, but I think he's going to develop that. Um, but for, for me, you, you can see he's there. But, you know, the, the pass he made to Agrero, where Agrero was slightly offside, the weight and the sort of curl of the, on, he put on that. He's got it, hasn't he? It was just spot on. Like, not many of our players can play that weight ball pass like the way he did. I don't think Mares arguably, maybe could do as a left footer, but... Yeah, I thought I thought that just showed how he does fit in and he can produce that end product. Diaz, um, you know, if if he does go, you know, disappointing. But I've seen, him, I've seen him a few times for the senior team. He's kind of given the ball away a lot. I mean, he squandered the ball a lot against Leicester. I thought. I, gave, I know. I know a winger. You're allowed to because you're kind of taking a riskier game. You play the just, riskier ball, don't you? But it just seemed like he, you know, miscontrol it. Maybe it's trying too hard and being a bit unfair because I've not, you know, watched him as much as many other people have. But I certainly think Foden's a pick of the two, and um, you know. I don't think it'll be too far off, and, he, and we've been crying out for Foden to play more and more, haven't we? And he, I think he's had that opportunity a bit recently, which I'm glad. I'm going to get more and more games over Christmas as well, so he'll have opportunity to play. Um, the penalties against Leicester, we we talk about penalties in general in depth on this week's patron special show. Make sure you check it out and subscribe uh, to uh, to get that. But City keep on winning penalty shootouts, David. Yeah. Um... We're, I'm not sure if I'm confident or not with them on this because you, your instincts when it gets to penalties is, oh, God, it's penalty shootout, win or lose this. But City have got so many good takers these days. Yeah, law of averages, though, with with the amount it's that they've, a thing, though, is it? they've won. Some, one of them's going to... Mm. Anyway, uh, Raheem Sterling's miss. <laughs> Rather unfortunate, Paul. It's not unfortunate. I think it's, I think it's stupid. I mean, just... Obviously, you know, he's not in the wrong with the bad press, but so much media spotlight on him. He just doesn't need to, like, do that. I mean, Yeah, but if that goes in... No, no <laughs> but, but then he's drawing negative attention to himself for being kind of, like, cocky. I don't, th- I no, don't he's think... No, he's got a little devil on one shoulder going, go on, <laughs> go on. I, no, I, d- I just think... And you so know what, I don't listen like, to that devil as well. <laughs> when he did it, I just kind of, like, burst out laughing with shock because I was just like, what is he doing? Like, for, you're like an absolute like idiot for missing it. On a side note, I love how we've seen that little devil come out in in a few of the the players from the Premier League recently, <laughs> referring to to Deli Ali when he turned round to the Arsenal fans the other night and and did the the two nil sign nil. with his hands. I just thought oh, that is that's proper Sunday League, that isn't it? Yeah. I love it. Um, defensively, 
any concerns of the, uh, let's say, daydreaming? Zinchenko obviously caught out for the, the Leicester equaliser. Otamendi went wandering a little bit for Everton's goal. And Walker has been a bit below par recently when it comes to the defending side of things. Is that, is that a bit of a concern? Uh, Finn Zinchenko, you know, obviously he's a modified winger playing uh, full-back. Um, I, think he sh- I think he was midfield, wasn't he? And he kind of like shifted back towards the end well, of that yeah, game. Yeah, he's an second midfielder, isn't he? So. <laughs> but, I mean, Zinchenko's issue, I've he's been like two or three obvious errors over the past two seasons where his positioning has just been wrong and he's been ball-watching because he's out of position. And that's kind of crept up a few times. You know, you, a lot of the time you don't notice in a game because it doesn't happen because the players are always in the right position. But with him, you've just seen it happen and it's been costly in the past quite a lot of the time. Walker, um, he's not had the same season he had last season, has he, I don't think? Mm, I think... I know it's it's probably an easy easy excuse or something like that, but that sort of sharpness that we saw last season, possibly it, it might not be quite there because of the amount of games that he's, he's played. played. Lot, Obviously, yeah. the World Cup was... He was huge for England in the World Cup. He was, a, you know, one of the main players um, in in defence. Um, but then again, you know, you've got to say, well, everyone else played at the World Cup more or less in the Premier League. What's... Playing with Mahrez as well in front of him, yeah, you know, pretty much every game. You know, that's a new partnership. Maybe I know he was new it last could season. Be, you know, it could be expectations as well. With really, everyone's could be the holes in his socks. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Were they there last season? I don't know. I can't remember when they start when he started doing it. Okay. Um, Time to move on, and this coming Christmas period is a world away from the one when City went through 20 years ago. Having sunk to the lowest position in their history, they looked an absolute mile off for promotion from the third tier, following a defeat at York in late December. That game was two decades ago this week. David Mooney has been looking at that festive season when things didn't look quite so jolly in 1998. When Gordon Connolly opened the scoring for York against City on the 19th of December 1998, it looked like it was the same old story for Joe Royal's side. They'd been slipping down the league in the third tier and hadn't won a league game since beating Oldham 3-0 at Boundary Park in early November. Craig Russell's equaliser offered hope, but Andrew Dawson's last-minute winner for the home team made it just three wins in 15 for City ahead of a Boxing Day trip to Wrexham. Midfielder Michael Brown explained how desperate it was. We went to Wrexham and we were still only 12th at this point. It was Boxing Day and I think um, I was struggling with a heavy cold. I was dying and we were terrible we were, but we managed to nick it 1-0. Only years later did I find out that Joe Royal was going to be sacked after the end of that game. You know, I found out that it looked like it was, you know, the board were going to sack him, but we, we nicked through and the rest was history. However, chairman at the time, David Bernstein, says Royal's future wasn't in doubt when they travelled to the racecourse ground. First of all, the rumours are completely untrue. Uh, we had great confidence in, in Joe Royal. Uh, we seem to be, it's one of those situations, we seem to be doing all the right things, we signed some, some, some good players, uh, we were appearing to do everything right, and yet the results weren't coming through at the time. And I think it was on Boxing Day that we played a match at Main Road, and I'm not sure, but it may have been against Stoke again. And I remember we were 1-0 down at half-time, and it was all looking pretty desperate. And I think there was a big barley in the dressing room at half-time. 
as I understand it. I mean, I wasn't there. And we came out and we won that game and then we never looked back after that. The chairman is actually misremembering there. That Stoke match was the midweek after the Boxing Day win at Wrexham. We'll come to that one shortly. But first, here's midfielder Kevin Horlock explaining just how important that trip to North Wales was to almost getting automatic promotion that season. I think it was a way to, was it a way to... Wrexham or York, Wrexham I think it was, Boxing Day, I think I, I took a corner and Gerard Viking scored and then from that day we went on a, just a mad run of winning games and it did look like we were going to sneak in and we didn't. Gotta get bad before it gets good, gotta get bad before it gets good, gotta get bad before it gets good. Ahead of that match City had sunk to 12th in the third tier, they had been lower that season down to 14th after four games. But symbolically, this was much worse. After losing at York, 21 fixtures had been played. Defender Richard Edgell admits he and the team weren't great that day, but they didn't give up fighting. I remember sitting in the dressing room after the Wrexham game and Kevin Orlock sat next to me saying to me, that's probably the worst performance I've ever seen by any professional player and I think I, I did have a bad game. But I think the lads sat there and we all sat there and realised that we we did have a chance of maybe getting automatic and we just had to keep going. Edgell struggled to deal with a tricky winger at Wrexham who was there on loan from Manchester United. That player, who would eventually go on to play for City in that season's Wembley playoff final, was Terry Cook. Back in 97, I'd done the cruise shirt and obviously um, to get my recovery, getting back playing quick and sharper after I came back after rehab with the injury. I went to Wrexham on loan and it was actually a game against Man City, I think he's back on Boxing Day, I had a really good game and obviously Man City made inquiries about me and because and, and my loan period was coming to an end at Wrexham. That win at Wrexham sparked an upturn in fortunes. Two days later they trailed Stoke at half-time in a match at Main Road as David Bernstein remembers. Paul Dickoff and Gareth Taylor scored in the second half to turn it around. Taylor says it was tight. It was a big game because they were going for it as well that season and I'd, I'd had a goal disallowed just before I scored, actually, which was a disappointment. But um, now I remember I was actually someone showed it to me on a video the other day, and it was Dicky who's gone down the left side, cut back in, put a great cross in, and I've got my first goal, which was which is a fantastic feeling. The result sent City on a brilliant run of form. From that point on, they lost just twice more in the league all season and finished third, earning a spot in the playoffs. Had there been a couple more weeks to go, or had that run began a fortnight earlier, they probably would have caught Walsall, who went up in second place. Manager Joe Royal explains what changed in that Christmas period. I think we came to terms with the division. We came to terms with every game at Main Road being the biggest game of the season for the visiting side, in some ways more than their home game, because Main Road was a stadium that they might never play on again. You know, there's certainly nothing that size. It was a hard division, it wasn't a great division. The manager also says the players he had began to lead on the pitch, and that was a big reason why the team improved. We had a goal scorer which gave us, you know, we, we had front players, three front players between them, Sean particularly, Dickey and Gareth Taylor, you know, who were all tops in that division, so I felt that gave us a chance. And when Morrison came, although there wasn't an immediate uh, renaissance, as it were, you know, certainly Andy's influence when he wasn't playing was still felt. After winning the playoff final that season, City went on to finish second and win promotion again, this time returning to the Premier League. For a season and a half and seemingly out of nowhere, the fans were treated to winning football nearly every week. 
and that was something that hadn't happened since the early 1990s. Without that Christmas miracle in 1998, who knows where the club would be today. Hi there, this is Joe Royal speaking. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast and carry on doing so. For a pledge of $2 a month, you can hear our weekly bonus show on a wide range of city topics. There's more details on patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Thankfully, this festive period probably won't look as glum shall we say. I think we'll uh, have plenty to celebrate coming up. Time to move on and hopefully we're going to be celebrating wins against Crystal Palace and Leicester. How crucial is this year's Christmas period with City chasing Liverpool? I, well, I mean, the pressure's on these days, isn't it, in every game not to drop any points, but you look at the the Christmas period last season, um, United were already, what, 15, 16 points behind by the time that it got to the busy, actual busy period. And so you kind of thought, well, they can just cruise through these if they really want to. Um, and you know me, I don't deal with pressure very well. So I'm I'm very nervous about this run of fixtures because even like on paper, the City should have the easier set. They just, they'll still be under pressure. Um, is the, Do you think, the, the, you know, you mentioned that pressure there. Do you think it's on both teams to, to keep winning? And if so, who do you think, Paul, is better equipped to, to deal with it? Do you feel it's better to lead or... Or do you feel it's better to be chasing them and putting that pressure on? I think better to be chasing at the moment. I think the pressure's on Liverpool now when they've kind of rode the luck a little bit, I think, on a lot of fixtures. So better be chasing. And, and um, if you look at the fixtures we've had, we've, we've had you know Chelsea away, Arsenal away, Spurs away, Liverpool away already. So out of the top six, we've only got the derby, really, um, to, to play away from home. So I feel like we've got a better running than what, what Liverpool probably will do. Um, so... I'd rather be chasing at this at this stage. I think Liverpool have played a few of the, the top teams away anyway. I think they've played away at uh, at Chelsea and they've played away at Spurs, haven't they? Because they were supposed to be at, at White Hart Lane, but ended up at Wembley early in the season. So uh, I, I don't know. I think they've they've got a few of their tough they've games City, out of the way. They've got City away. They've got City away. Though that is true. Um, Crystal Palace, who have also got City away this weekend, uh, are reeking away from trouble in the bottom half, but still only two wins in their last ten. Shouldn't really be a problem, should it? At the Etihad. I always find this bit of the show really difficult because it, I mean, <laughs> every week, what what more can you say? Well, City are a better team; they should win, and uh, that that's a fact. That the City are a better team than Crystal Palace are, and they should win the game this weekend. Do you think Crystal Palace have have got anything that can potentially hurt Manchester City? I'm thinking about Wilfred Zaha. You know, he's got pace. He's going to be a key player for them, isn't he? He will. I think. Um, I don't know. I I don't know because you look at all the top teams that come to City and they should have something to to hurt them and and quite often they don't. It, if City drop points, it's because City haven't been good enough and that's that's ultimately and and Crystal Palace have been you know exceptional. They've been they've been above par. City have been below par. That's that's kind of how it works. Um, but you don't kind of want to be too overconfident with these things because that's when it comes back round and bites you on the backside. So I I, I don't know. Um, Crystal Palace last season were were resilient until. You know, City got that first, and then they ran riot. Do you expect something pretty similar this time, Paul? I think so. Um, it's always the case with City, really, when they're home, and you just need that first goal, really. And then I think it kind of follows because the pressure's off, and they can just play free-flowing attacking football. Um, we'll have to see how Crystal Palace line up, but I think it just just seems like it could be quite a straight 
forward home game. It's where they sit as well because I mean, yeah. if City score in the first ten minutes, do they carry? Do they sit deep and and try and minimise the damage, or do they push up try and get an equal? Because I mean that. How many teams are going to look at City having gone in front after three or four minutes and go, well, we've, we've got to get back into this game? Because immediately you kind of go into damage limitation mode, don't you? Mm. Mm. Um, how much do you think will, just having played Leicester away, have an effect on that, that Boxing Day game? We, we've seen it quite a bit actually recently over the, you know, the past few seasons. Obviously there was the Arsenal one. Uh, um, Wembley, and you know, even going as far back as when Stoke? It was the FA Cup and Stoke, yeah, yeah. yeah. Play Stoke about four times in Strange. five days. It's yeah. just bizarre, isn't it? How the you know the fixtures work at times. The but temperature of those balls in the drawer, I think. Do <laughs> you think it'll have any effect whatsoever? Shouldn't do, should it? Because it'd be a different team. Paul said, Paul, you said it before that the rotated the team for Leicester. Leicester rotated as well, so it'd be two different teams. No, it'd be different, two different teams. I think if, if anything's going to come from it, I think it'll be the fact that if we take the lead, we're not going to kind of let it go this time. With that in mind, then, do you, do you think, you know, do you think Pep will be taking anything from from Tuesday's game into this, this coming match? Um... He probably won't play Zinchenko at left back. <laughs> That'll be his first thought. Say to say, he's probably learnt more about his side than than Chris, uh, than than Leicester. Um, again, possibly. I think there's. I don't. I don't think there's much that Guardiola doesn't know about this team now. I don't see why. I think because the level of analysis he does on all sorts of on City's opposition on how they're playing themselves. You saw it in the Amazon documentary, which we refer to pretty much every week these days. The number of times he kept calling players back and said, "If this happens, do this. If this happens, mm. do that." And so he, he must. I mean, I don't, I don't know about his wife and kids. He must be a nightmare to live with because he mustn't think about anything else. Mm. Um, Liverpool on the other hand, over this festive period, have Wolves, Newcastle and Arsenal before that showdown with City. Uh, Pep Guardiola's side have got Palace, Leicester, who we've just spoken about, and also Southampton. You'd like to think on paper that that City should be in the better shape for that upcoming match against Liverpool. I'd hope so. I would hope so. I, You'd I mean, be disappointed if they weren't. Yeah, I, I don't know, because Arsenal... If they hadn't just lost to Spurs, you know what I mean? <laughs> I thought because I thought Arsenal but again, would be quite in the handy. Cup changes. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I I think going into that game with Liverpool, I would honestly be surprised if both teams had picked up nine points. It um it it so having that game, you know, come at the the end of this festive run really sort of puts the significance on this Christmas period, doesn't it? Compared to to other ones because you know think about it this is the last opportunity City have to take points off Liverpool well I, I think City probably got one of the better Christmas draws they've had for they've had for, they've had for years really I mean Wolves are not an easy game Arsenal's certainly not an easy game so I think I think it's good that Liverpool got so many games in, so, in a short space of time leading up to the City leading up to the City fixture so the bonus I suppose actually I've only just thought of this but the bonus is that after that Liverpool game when the League Cup and FA Cup are coming around City have got Burton and Scunthorpe mm. so <clears> you know the, <laughs> both the, the way as well the, there's an opportunity well, to the, the, there's an opportunity there to uh, to really kind of say well we can go all guns blazing for these games because coming afterwards we should be able to rest a few players in them just on football at Christmas do you, en- do you enjoy it do you enjoy Watching City over the festive period. Yeah, I, I love it. Um, I just think it's good being at home and having it's you know on the TV or if you go to the game. I think it's great, good atmosphere. Kind of people rushing back and forth, 
you know, and there'll be a run as no, well. Yeah, yeah, normally, you know, people, mm. you know, midweek games, people are going after work and it's kind of like, you know, you get home, get home late. And there'll be a run where there'll be football on every day for like six days. Yeah, yeah. And on top of that, there'll be a game at, at like 12.30, then there's the three o'clock, so then there'll be one yeah. at, at um, 5.30. And then these days, well, well one at 7.45 on that day as well. So if, if there was ever a winter break, they could never <clears> do it over Christmas. Oh, It'd have no. to be earlier, but I don't February, something like that. January, February. I love... Um, I love it because, like you say, David, there's always football on, and there's always like uh, lots of food and snacks and leftover turkey and unless and lots of usually lots of alcohol around the house. That, unless we've lost, that's when it's not. And I'm just about to come on to this. Um, that's Sunderland that's, New Year's yeah, Day. Martin Tyler, the New Year. <laughs> Martin Tyler, screaming his head off, shouting "G." Uh, and uh, yeah, I had a splitting headache at the time, as uh, as it was a New Year's Day fixture, and uh, yeah, we just didn't need that, did we? I I went and sulked for the rest of New Year's Day. <laughs> I did, I did. Shut as well. myself away. Uh, time to move on, and it is time for our charity bet. We're up to five hundred eighty pounds for the season after another win last week on the charity bet. This time, Mooney's prediction of three one against Everton came in. Well done, Moons. Thank William you all. Hill is giving each member of the team a £10 correct score single on matches with the proceeds going to the Christie a Cancer Hospital in Manchester. So uh, an amazing cause there. Two games this week, so two more chances to increase the pot. Howard Hocking, uh, first of all, for the match against Palace, has gone for a 4-0 win. 4-0 is 15-2 with William Hill. That's £75 that be going could be going into the pot. He's also back City to win 2-1 against Leicester which is 7-1 uh, and that could add £70 in the pot there Mooney talk us through your predictions uh, rather simple 3-0 against Palace and uh, 3-1 against Leicester both City wins 3-0 win against Palace is 11-2 so 55 quid could go into the pot and uh, 3-1 win at Leicester replicating your prediction against Everton and hopefully replicating your win uh, could add £90 into the pot Paul talk us uh, talk us about talk us through tell us about your predictions. Uh, I've gone four-one City uh, versus Palace and two-nil away to Leicester. I think we'll get that second goal and actually kill the game. Yeah, kill the game yeah. off there. The four-one win over Palace is twelve to one, which uh, could see one hundred and twenty quid go into the pot. Fingers crossed for that to come in to uh, to bump us up nicely. Uh, and also your prediction for the Leicester game two-nil uh, is five to one, so fifty quid could be going in there, courtesy of William Hill. Remember, you've got to be 18 or over to gamble. Prices can change and for more information about responsible gambling, visit BeGambleAware.org and time to move on and as you might expect with the news this week Howard Hocking has got quite a lot to talk about. Here he is. Put a spell on you. It was the news all City fans have been dreading. The news you knew would come one day, but you woke up each morning hoping, praying, that this was not that day. A serious injury to Kevin De Bruyne, a transfer request from Leroy Sane, season ticket prices going up again, being moved from your normal seat for one game. No, much worse than that. Manchester United have finally parted company with the special one, Jose Mourinho. So off he trundled just a £20 million or so richer, freed from his prison cell at the Linton Travel Tavern for a short break before he poisons another club. And despite all that poisoning, 
Astonishingly, he still retained the support of a hardcore section of the United fan base, who in a cult-like frenzy repeated the mantra that the problems lay elsewhere. There were, of course, many problems elsewhere, but if you couldn't see that the sulking, spiteful, miserable egotist at the helm was not the main one, then I pity you. And I have a theory as to why United fans did not accept, at least publicly, what was staring them and the rest of us in the face. That Jose Mourinho was a lousy, lousy manager for Manchester United. There was desperation for him to succeed because of the two failures that preceded him, and because they had to pretend to like and support a man they'd previously despised. For so many reasons it had to work, and some never gave up hope that it would, even when United resembled a pub side week in, week out. And accepting defeat would mean admitting what they've known for a while, the elephant in the room, that Jose Mourinho was hired specifically to win the title for United, and to put it in even plainer, starker terms, he was appointed as a direct response to City hiring Pep, and to get one over him. Now remind me, how did that go? Yes, that's right, little old City, the team whose name nobody knows, the irrelevance of a joke club, now called the Shots in Manchester, to the extent of making our cross-city rivals if you can call them rivals, make desperate last-chance appointments to try and stay on an even keel. And not only managerial appointments either. Can there be little doubt that the likes of Alexis Sanchez and Fred were signed not to address problem areas in the squad, but to try and make a statement to City and the rest of the footballing world? And remind me, how did those two signings go? But with Mourinho, the PR war waged by the likes of Comical Ali himself, Duncan Castles, made sense in the battle to persuade United fans that not only was Mourinho the right man for United, the man to bring back the glory as a born winner, but that it would beast Pep Guardiola, the manager they secretly wanted, the manager many journalists were saying preferred to go to United, even after he'd privately agreed to go to City. Gary Neville has said this week that when Mourinho arrived, he was seen as a banker, almost guaranteed to win the title. They made a pact with the devil because they truly believed he was their saviour, bless him. Funny old world, isn't it? Of course, it's a different world now too. United are no longer the playground bullies, and they've made disastrous decision after disastrous decision trying to rectify the situation. What more proof could you have of a power shift than City pulling out Rotherham, Schalke and Burton Albion in three recent cup draws? We've truly arrived now. But back to United for a cheap laugh. This desperation to beat Pep and win a title permeated throughout the club and led to all long-term plans for progression being thrown out of the window. It permeated into the transfer deals they carried out, the final nail in the coffin really. The need to throw huge amounts of money at ready-made players, or so they thought, with little or no resale value because they wanted success now. By the end of Jose's reign this week, they're further away than ever from achieving their goals. Edward Wood knew this when he hired Mourinho. Plenty of board members foresaw how it would turn out too, but Woodward rolled the dice and gambled on getting Jekyll rather than Hyde. It was a terrible call in the end. The reaction that this dismissal has had is telling. Sadness amongst the laughs from rival fans, and Spanish newspaper Sport wonder why Madrid would be interested in Jose, saying his football clock has stopped and the game has moved on. They also call him the most toxic and poisonous character who has passed through Spanish football. Now that's quite an achievement. The current situation is farcical, but the likes of Woodward and the Glazers just keep on digging. Now they have a caretaker manager for six months, and I can only assume this is because they've identified someone in the summer that they cannot get now. But if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer had never played for Manchester United, would anyone be calling his appointment a good one with his track record? If we assume not, 
and we should, then why is it a good appointment because he did play for them? Ah yes, that old chestnut about him understanding the club. I wonder just how many extra points United would gain because their manager understands the club, whatever that may mean. What is it he understands precisely? Their legendary DNA, the need to attack and play youth? Which set of fans does not want those two things anyway? United fans are no different. It was this flawed idea that an insider would work best that has had me pleading for it to be given to Giggsy till the end of the season or anyone else from the class of 92 for over five years now. One day, though this will have to do for now. And when Paul Ince is arguing about the need for United man, then you know the idea is flawed. He said this week that the caretaker manager should have an understanding of Manchester United and if you look at who has links to the club but is external, that doesn't leave many realistic options. You'd look at someone who has managed at a decent level and knows it inside out. He then suggested Steve Bruce or Mark Hughes. This stuff really writes itself sometimes. Whilst the likes of City and Liverpool move on and progress, United's treading of water whilst dressed in a gold sequin bathing suit has left them years behind. They don't have to play for someone like Pochettino to turn things around in a matter of months. They need another transition period to follow on from the previous four they've had since Alex Ferguson left. A man who sowed the seeds of destruction himself by ostracising previous owners over the small matter of some horse seamen, then suggesting David Moyes his successor. They truly are the owners of Cups for Cock-Ups now, as City prepare for their 10th Cup semi-final in a decade. One day United will get things right, they're too powerful and too rich not to, but in the meantime we may as well enjoy the ride, for however long it lasts. Because for United fans, the worst thing that could happen was to hit a period of gross underachievement just as their two main rivals got their act together and sped off over the horizon. And just wait until Leeds get promotion. It's Nicky Weaver, and you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. The Blue Moon Podcast best bits. Someone shot, obviously for Birmingham, and it was just going wide. So I just dived, sort of like, just to cover it. Like I knew it was going wide, but you just dived to cover it. And so I dived to my left, and as I landed, I just felt something funny in my right knee. Then thinking, I got up and put the ball down for the goal kick, and I'm, I'm thinking, I can't kick this. But I'm thinking, well, there's nothing wrong with me. And I'm thinking, so I've tried to kick it, and I think I've just like, hit it straight at it, oh, and I, I'm thinking, oh, what have I done? So the physio come on, and I'm like, my knees just I give way on me, I don't know what's happened, and uh, so I come off, um, and then I went for a scan the next day, and I just tore my cartilage, which, you know, five or six weeks, routine sort of thing, um, so I went to have this operation, um, thinking I'd be back in, you know, before the end of the season, uh, it was March the 5th, 2002, I'll never forget it, and uh, I thought I'd be back, you know, before the end of the season. And I went for the operation, they said it had gone successful, I rehabbed it just as about, when I was about to um, go back into training, my knee just ballooned up. Well, that's not right. So I went to see the guy again, I had another operation. Um, same thing happened again. Went down all the process of rehabilitation, just as about go back in training, ballooned up again. So that's when it started. Alarm bells started to ring, thinking, "Well, there's something not right here." And I remember going for a walk around the training ground with a physio at Carrington. They saying, "We don't know what's up with your knee, Nicky." You know, I'm thinking, "Well, 
surely. You, know, you ask a physio how long am I going to be out for, and they can tell you. And, and he's saying, we don't know. You know, we've been in there twice, and we haven't sorted the problem out. We don't know what. So I'm sort of like, right, okay. Um, and Paolo Wanchop had just been over to Cleveland, Ohio in America. There's a place there called the Cleveland Clinic. And that's where the Costa Rica national team used. And they said they're really good. So I went over there. Alfie Arland went as well. Uh, so Alfie and Paolo had already been. And um, I went over. Cut a long story short. I basically had an operation over there. They did touch on this big operation I might have to have, if, but they were other procedures they had to go through for. So I had this little operation, come back again, rehabbed it, blew up, back over, another operation, same again. Actually got back into training this time and got on the bench a few times. I think I played in the, the UEFA Cup, uh, TNS at Cardiff. That was the only game I played for a few years. So I got back for quite a while this time, but then it went again. So this is when I'm thinking, well, this... This could be it for me now. Uh, I'd had four operations in probably around about a year, if that. And I've not played, I've hardly trained, and my knee just didn't feel like I was only 23, 24 perhaps, 24 at this point. So then I remember getting in touch with the people in America, and then the operation that they'd touched on when I first went was to have uh, a dead man's cartilage implanted in my knee which was a procedure that they didn't do in Europe then. So that's why obviously I had to go to America. So I had to, then I had to, so it was decided, we sent them some scans over, um, and it was decided that I needed to have this procedure. Um, and to have this procedure, your knee has to be in a certain condition, not too far gone, but you know, you need to be youngish because it's a long rehab thing. Um, so I had to go on a donor's list and I had to wait. So I, I just had to wait for a couple of months. For them to ring up and say, right, they had all the measurements of me, they didn't know exactly what they needed, and they have to wait for the right, someone to die almost, for, you know, and they just said it needs to be someone of a similar build and size to you, with a similar age, um, with obviously a good a good cartilage, and, you know, got a phone call, right, right over Christmas it was, because I went early January, and I uh, went and had this operation, they took, you know, they give me a 70-30% chance of it being um, a success, and I'll never forget, I went there with a physio who's called Jim Webb, and we sat down in a waiting room, waiting to see the doctor. And this guy walked in, and he was in all sorts of pain. And he sat next to us, and I said, oh, you look like you're struggling. And he said, yeah, I had a meniscal transplant last year, which is exactly what I was having. And I'm like, oh, God, you know. And I asked him, and he's like, yeah, it's all... And I looked at his knee, and it was all swollen, and, oh, and I'm thinking... So that's sort of like, you know, I was optimistic, but then, you know, when you see that... Hear the full interview on our website, bluemoonpodcast.com. Howard Hawking on his take of the week's big news. Um, great to have Howard on the podcast and obviously great to hear his views on the, on what's been going on <laughs> Not been a quiet across, week, the, has it? across the city. Uh, it is, unfortunately, the final part of this week's Blue Moon podcast and it's all about you. Like, you get your questions into us for Ask the Panel. If you want to do so for next week, drop us a tweet at Blue Moon Podcast or you can uh, email us via the website, bluemoonpodcast.com. The first comes from the website from Ian Gibson. We saw Kevin De Bruyne return against Leicester. How involved should he be? over Christmas, given how long he's been out for? I think um, as much as possible, really. I think um, providing that, you know, his fitness and his knee feels all right, I think 
think he should, think he should just do it because he's going to have to get back to fitness eventually. I wouldn't like to see him play more than 60 minutes, I think, if he does start. But I think we should, if he's fit to start, he should he should start. Otherwise, you're always going to be worrying about it. So 60 minutes, take him off until he feels like he's absolutely comfortable and got his match fitness back, in my view. How no, much do you think... I, I, the, disagree, the, I was going to say, how much do you think the game against Leicester will, will influence that decision? Because obviously he scores the goal... Uh, first game back. He... Well, let, I mean, let's take it in two parts because there's no there's no question over his quality. So it's not a case of he needs to be eased but, back into the team to uh, get his to get you know to yeah, get the bearings. I'm going to say with some players, it, it it does take a bit of time to get that that sharpness back. But with him coming straight back and, and scoring, and scoring, you, and know, he, you think you look at his no last issue. return. Look at his last return against Fulham in the in the League Cup. He you know he didn't score, but he you know he was he was running that mm. game to let to go off. Um, now I actually disagree a little bit, Paul, because I. Given how thick and fast the games are coming and how long the season is, City are much better equipped with De Bruyne there and available for the rest of the season than they are if they were to use him and get maximum points in this run into that Liverpool game, I think. I think you, you kind of take the view of it's a marathon, not a sprint at this stage. I think the thing is as well, the nature of how Guardiola changes his teams and the nature of the system that he's so... Um, or should I say the players are so adaptable to the system. He doesn't often rotate De Bruyne out though, does he? Well, to be fair, we've not seen him for a bit anyway, have we? You know, you'd think with Mares, um, De Bruyne, Silver, Foden, Sterling, um, who the other Silver comes who's into still center. injured, yeah, Bernardo yeah. Silver as well, um, Sane, all being very comfortable with it. You think that that is makes the decision for Guardiola a lot easier, given how. You know how Sane's been playing, how Sterling's been playing, how um, Silver, both Silvers, you know, when fit have been playing. It's just um, other injuries for me. I think <clears throat> as long as there is, as long as there's no pressure on him to to have to play ninety minutes, ninety minutes, ninety minutes, then I think you'll see. I, I agree with you about the sixty minute thing. I, I'd, I'd I'd expect him if he's going to start, then I'd expect him to come off at some point in those games. Um, but I I suspect he might. I suspect he might start one and come off and then be on the bench for the next one and come on. Lauren Pritchard has tweeted us, will the Christmas games be the time when Phil Foden is trusted to start in the league? The countdown's on, isn't it? Because <clears throat> it's going to have to happen at some point. We we sit here every week and talk about how good he is and how, how much he's, he's ready to go. Um, and like the last question, if De Bruyne's not fit, Foden's there. Why, why not give him a chance in one of these games? Because... I mean, look at the run like we were talking about before. I know Palace is a game where they should go that they they should go out and get the three points. Could potentially start in that. Leicester maybe less so because it's away from home. Southampton they've got a new manager, so you don't really know kind of how they'll be feeling at the time. They they went and beat Arsenal the other week, so I you know I I, I don't know. The thing is for me, and I, I mentioned this and I touched on it earlier on in this episode of the podcast, is that. I feel comfortable with Phil Foden. It's not like any other youngster. You know, he's not he's not just coming out of the academy. He's not playing in the under-23s. He is a member of the first-team squad. And he has been, you know, since sort of last season, he has been in and around that squad. Trains with them every day. He's totally used to them. He's not phased by any of it. He's not... Um, uh, you know, do you know, he's not Lopez when he came on against and scored on his his debut sort of thing. He he isn't a competition winner anymore. Do you know who he reminds me of in that sense? Sean Wright Phillips. 
because when he came through and he's the last one that I kind of remember coming through and and feeling oh he's got it he's 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 in the he's a first team player he's not he's, he, there's no messing about with this lad. You think of someone like Micah Richards, there was still a few question marks over mm, things like his yeah. positioning, his his tackling sort of thing. His I think as well. Football, I think like. I think as well. Um, the fact that he pretended to be injured every time he ran forward, you know, out of breath. Yeah, I think as well. It, the most pleasing thing is about the the situation with Phil Foden and it's going to happen he's going to start in the league and it wouldn't surprise me if it's over these next few fixtures um is that he's there on merit you know what i mean he's not I, I don't see him as a weakness um i don't see him as somewhere if i'm in an opposition you know if i'm in the opposition changing room i wouldn't i don't i couldn't imagine um managers putting too much emphasis on players targeting him as a as a weak point i'd see managers putting emphasis on him as, as someone actually we should probably look out for because he'll do something um, and he has that ability to. So I think that's the, the biggest compliment I think that you can pay Phil Foden and I don't think it's a case of if, it's a case of when and I, I really do see it coming in over this Christmas period. Um, obviously the injuries as well have, have helped him but again I, I genuinely believe it's it's on merit and it's more Foden forcing Guardiola's, Guardiola's hand. hand. There's that moment in the uh, the Leicester game where the ball's being cleared from the corner or, or from across or whatever. Ball came to him pretty fast, just first touch off a volley, passed it outside and like such a class. I don't know if you've noticed what I'm talking about. I don't remember it. Just no. did it, just kind of like perfect weight at the pass, really hard pass to make and just the weight at the touch was great. And this is why he's so good because normally when you get someone coming for the academy, it's quite easy for defenders to blend in because all they've got to do is be somewhat competent on the ball, not give the you know first football is harder than making it out to be and being a bit simplistic. But as long <laughs> as it, I was going to say, when did when did you make the top level? <laughs> as long, as, well, Mourinho never did. Didn't <laughs> as long as um, as long as they can kind of like not make a mistake, then it's not that hard. Whereas if if you're going as a technical player, when we've got so many technical players in mm. Mares, Silver, two Silvers, Gundogan, Sterling, Sane that could all play in that role, then that shows how good technically he is to, for even someone from you know a lad from Stockport in our academy to have the same technical ability. Because his first touch is probably in one of the top four or five of the squad, never mind the team. It's probably in the whole squad. He's probably got one of the best first touches, which is something to say given the amount of international quality players that we've got. So that's why I feel quite confident in him. Obviously, he needs to run a games to see because he's quite, it's quite, you know, see how durable he is. You know, he's still quite young. He's not played that many senior <clears throat> games. Foden though could quite easily turn around and say, "You rate me, you rate me well, then I should be in the team." Because yeah. at, at, the, at, at the moment, if, if we're sitting here singing his praise and saying there's no real drawback for him not being in the team, uh, for him being in the team, then. Uh, you, I know Guardiola's got a lot yeah. of faces to keep happy there. Foden's another ab- one that he's got to keep happy. You're absolutely right, but as you know, you've got to see it as well as he's one of the most valuable assets at the football club at the yeah. minute. Uh, unfortunately, um, after I've had my say, that is it for our final Blue Moon podcast before Christmas. But don't worry, we've got some festive treats for you on the way. Check in with us on Christmas Day. We've got our very special Blue Moon podcast quiz show going online. And don't forget as well, there's a special patron bonus show this week too, where we're talking all about City in penalty shootouts. That's available for everybody who backs $2 a month on Patreon. So go and sign up. And also, you're missing out on regular blogs by David Mooney and Richard Burns, which are a really good read 
on uh, on the morning train if uh, if that is your commute. We'll be back between Christmas and New Year as the games come thick and fast. So until then, thanks for listening, and once again, thank you to my uh, two studio guests, Paul Atherton. Cheers, Sam. Merry Christmas, everyone. And David Mooney. Thanks, and uh, Merry Christmas as well. Indeed. Merry Christmas, and we'll see you before the New Year. the blue moon podcast please support the show patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast